Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Let's get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. At least that's what we do normally, but there's been um, a right royal brouhaha in the United Kingdom uh, this week. Dominic Cummings, that uh, master of the dark arts of politics and campaigning, has um, kicked back at uh, allegations which were thrown his way by the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Uh, we are lucky to have with us today uh, James Fletcher. Somebody who is uh, not only somewhat wise and knowing about things political in the United Kingdom, but he actually worked with and knows Dominic Cummings. We're also joined by Dawn Parry, who um, is in North Somerset, and she was um, a prospective member for Parliament in the last election for the Labour Party. And we have with us John Goodenson, who is um, somewhat of a political analyst, um, looking at trade, security and media, and um, he um, is uh, somewhat of a student of British politics. James, how are you, sir? Very well, thanks, Roy Phil. Thank you for having me. I always like having you over uh, to chew on, uh, to have a cup of tea and to chew on a crumpet with me uh, to talk about UK politics. And definitely to talk about um, some of the characters in UK politics. Uh, this week has seen allegations of sleaze hit the Tory party. Us lefties saying that, you know, we, we knew all of that. They're all a corrupt bunch. They all went to Eton and Harrow together, uh, let alone Oxbridge. Uh, it's uh, jobs for the boys. Last night, Downing Street briefed that the Prime Minister believed that Dominic Cummings was responsible for the leaks of his text messages with James Dyson, as well as for previous leaks, including over lockdowns last year. Have you and other ministers broken the rules, Prime Minister? If it was an attempt to move the story on from uncomfortable territory around Johnson's conversations with Dyson, then it has spectacularly backfired. In a sensational and unusually pithy blog post published this afternoon, Cummings makes a series of extremely serious allegations about the Prime Minister and his number 10 operation. First of all, with regards to the leak, Cummings said that he wasn't responsible for leaking the Dyson PM text in question, but does say, I do have some WhatsApp messages between the PM Dyson forwarded to me by the PM. I'm also happy to publish or give to the Cabinet Secretary the PM Dyson messages that I do have. All the more interesting, given that the Prime Minister at PMQs indicated that his text with Dyson might be published in full, but they haven't been. But this wasn't the only area dissected by Cummings, far from it. The number 10 story suggested that Cummings had leaked the news of a lockdown last year. Cummings said that that wasn't the case. The Cabinet Secretary told the PM that the leak was neither me nor the then Director of Communications and that all the evidence definitely leads to Henry Newman and others in that office. The PM was very upset about this. He said to me afterwards, If Newman is confirmed as the leaker, then they will have to fire him and this will cause me very serious problems with Carrie as their best friends. I told him that this was mad and totally unethical, that he could not possibly cancel an inquiry about a leak that affected millions of people just because it might implicate his girlfriend's friends. 
Downing Street tonight said that the Prime Minister had never interfered with a leak inquiry, though that isn't quite the allegation that Cummings put. Henry Newman is a former special advisor to Michael Gove and now an advisor in number 10 and is close to Boris Johnson's fiancée, Carrie Simmons. What is Cummings hoping to achieve by all of this? I've no reason to think Cummings is after anything other than revenge uh, on Boris Johnson and his entire apparatus. It's part of the long story of the power struggle. Uh, It's also, I suppose, an an ethics story about what politicians and ministers should and shouldn't properly do. Uh, And it's a, a story about how government should and shouldn't work. Somebody who's been seen on the outside of British politics in the last few months is a character called Dominic Cummings, who has uh, somewhat been wielding the knife, or has wielded the knife, back into the back of the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. James, for for all of us that aren't quite aware of, uh, first, what's been going on, who is Dominic Cummings? I believe you know him. Dominic is a a master campaigner. He's been doing this for 20 years. he ran campaigns that no one really re- remembers um, successfully, such as keeping the pound. Uh, North East says no, which was a referendum about having a Northern Assembly, which uh, his side won 80-20. Uh, most recently and most famously leading the Boat Leave campaign, which, of course, everyone thought he would lose. People just didn't think the country was going to make that decision. And indeed, the remaining side just did not take it that seriously and slept walked uh, through half their campaign. I'm a Remainer, by the way. And um, then he ran the he co-ran the general election um, for Boris Johnson, who, as, who was then Prime Minister, having succeeded Theresa May. And after after the, that win, he was persuaded by Boris Johnson to go to Number Ten Downing Street, where he remained until last November. Dominic Cummings is seen as um, an arch political operator, somewhat of a Machiavellian, Svengali genius. Um, what is his genius, sir? Um, Dom's genius is, is honestly, it's not genius. It's hard work and it's total belief in what he wants to achieve. And if your opponents don't work as hard and don't believe as much and don't read and prepare as much, you're in with a problem. And generally speaking, my interpretation of his success is that he has outflanked his opponents just by the virtue of working longer hours, thinking harder, doing the, doing the heavy lifting in a way that frankly, Westminster is not full of hard workers, it's full of talkers and blusterers. And if you have that skill set, you are destined to do very well in in a a chit-chat arena like uh, Westminster. When Dominic became Boris Johnson's uh, personal advisor in uh, 2019, uh, I remember many eyebrows were raised because people says he wasn't a Tory. So you know him. What exactly is the colour of his politics? Well, you know, I've talked about this in the past and I, 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 I have said and I strongly believe it is absolutely fatal to go into any political campaign wearing the colours of whoever it is you're working for. Just as in a legal setting, um, it's a mistake to say, oh, my client's really just like a really nice person and there's no way they did it. Or, you know, you become emotionally invested in, in your in your uh, client in a legal sense. The same is true in politics. And, and that Dominic obviously is very anti-Europe. He, he ran the Boat Leave campaign because he wanted to leave Europe. That is a personal obsession of his, having worked in government and having been repeatedly frustrated by the red tape. And again, as a Remainer, I've always said, I believe Europe has behaved, did behave incredibly badly and brought a lot of this on itself. There are certain things he wants to achieve. He's he's an out-and-out winner and he's prepared to do whatever it takes to win. And that's that honestly characterises... Uh, the majority of his success. So can we see uh, this uh, this knife fight between him as Johnson, as Johnson completely and utterly underestimating the fact that this is somebody who uh, basically is an all-out winner and somebody who, at least from the outside, doesn't <clears throat> have that many friends within the kind of the Westminster firmament. So hence, he's got kind of nothing to lose. Yeah, Boris Johnson's got bunker mentality. He's very lonely in his bunker. He's got his child bride advising him a, a young lady who has not been around Westminster for very long, who really doesn't have the sleeves up uh, experience of how to fight. Um, and it's all very well saying, oh, you know, she's senior in Tory circles. It's absolute nonsense. She's not a senior Tory person at all. And I think he's been terribly badly advised that picking a fight with a guy who, uh, as you say, has basically nothing to lose is incredibly stupid and was unnecessary 
and has provoked uh, Dominic Cummings to respond uh, with, you know, a very strong defence. Well, if he will have covered his positions, and he's, he's not running a country, and he's got the time to think this through. In a way, a lot of the people in number ten moving at a thousand miles an hour, dealing with COVID, dealing with the business of of country management, uh, haven't got the, the full focus, and they're likely to make mistakes. And this, I mean, the first mistake, as I say, was was provoking him in the first place and, and accusing him without any evidence of leaking. Incredibly, incredibly stupid. And I think they will uh, regret it very much indeed. Labour is urging the Speaker to summon senior ministers uh, as a poll reveals that 40% of voters think that the Tories are corrupt. Out and out sleazy bastards. Mm-hmm. Are they correct? Um, I don't know that I, I'm not interested in that instant headline fodder. I don't think it's as simple as that. I think errors get made in the, when people are exhausted and overloaded. But as is always the case in politics, the, the, the optics, as people like to say of it, are terrible. Um, if anyone is, if, if it can be construed in any way that someone's benefiting, then it's a big mistake. And I think that is the more likely characterization rather than people are, are trying to feather their nests. Um, but, can I, you know, can I, sure. Can I interject there, please? Sure. Um, Thank you. Um, I think actually that the question you just asked, Royfield, I, I think that's very valid. I'm currently a counsellor as well, and not as in healthy lifestyles or anything, I mean within local government. It's really important that people do understand that there have been a whole pile of things that have been pushed through um without being questioned or queried or, you know, without due diligence in any way, shape or form um, that have benefited individual members of the government directly financially. And that's completely wrong. I mean, you know, say, for example, in local government, you have to, cogs don't have to move slowly just to get three different quotes in, for example, for anything. And billions and billions of pounds have gone into the pockets of people who are direct relatives of um, of the government. It does feel peculiar that we have a prime minister saying uh, my private apartments in, in number 10 refurbed and him saying, let me go and find Tory donors to give me the money for this. It just feels odd. I don't know what the ethics are when you hold such high offices of state, but it feels wrong. Um, this is hardly the most uh, egregious scandal in the world. You know, you can look at some of the allegations that were thrown at Trump. Uh, improprieties around money and business dealings before he was president and whilst he was president. So this is not the worst thing in the world, uh, but it feels odd. There is there is a certain stink, and this government seems to be uh, slowly but surely mired in cash for mates types of scandals, doesn't it, James? Yeah, listen, Royfield, I'm with you all the way. I think the I think the redecorating of the flat is unbelievably ridiculous. You yeah. know, first of all, it's a sum of money. That is, you know, if two hundred thousand is 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 you know rumored to be the grand total, which is you know many many people's cases more than, more than the value of their house, so it's disgusting and dis- and tasteless straight away, and then you're having other other people pay for it. Um, the you, you know there wasn't the, the pre existing um, house actually wasn't in the worst condition ever. Um, it had been neglected in the 60s and 70s and then money had been spent on it over the years. And, that's, and my understanding is the Camerons actually left it in pretty good condition. So this is total waste. Everything about it looks and feels awful. If there is any conversation about getting donors to pay for it, I completely ag- ag- agree with Dawn. It's just it's terrible. Um, and an inquiry in due course will reveal many of these idiotic choices to award contracts to completely unproven providers who have benefited no no doubt i mean the argument will be and we all know what it's going what 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 will be presented is we were dealing with a national crisis and we didn't have the normal of procurement procedures in place because we were you know we were literally trying to save people's lives and it's it's an argument that works to a point but if it is uh, something that has revealed serial incompetence which is no doubt the case um then it's not going to wash for a lot of people um, I, I, and I agree, terrible, terrible exactly. decisions have been made, been made uh, by people who, you know, did not know what they were doing. Uh, I on, think John. also um, it might be worth mentioning that this is all happening at the same time as this unfolding uh, David Cameron lobbying scandal over this Greensill lobbying firm. 
and uh, potential conflict of interest. Um, Absolutely. So if there is a, a poll recently that Royfield referred to that said that a large portion of the public believes that the Tory party is fundamentally corrupt, it's referring not only to this smaller scandal about the refurb, but also other stories that are happening in the news at the same time. And I think sort of, James, to your point about, you know, is there sort of malicious or corrupt intent in some of these decisions? Um, I think that it, the mindset of uh, these people is uh, it, it, one where if you're not an ethical person and you don't have a strong moral and ethical compass, you often don't think twice about making decisions that favor you. You know, you don't have the same mooring of, of what's corrupt and what's not. And we saw this a lot with Trump, but elsewhere, too, where, you know, some of these decision makers are thinking, well, you know, why not? Why not should I uh, give a contract to my own business? I've got a great business. Uh, why shouldn't I hire my friend? My friend's the smartest guy I know. And um, it, just like you've said, James, you know, uh, it's not necessarily a case where we're looking at malicious, evil geniuses here. But it's people who don't have a strong enough ethical compass to recognize that the activities that they're doing are, in fact, corrupt ones. Having dealt with my previous life with all these all these individuals, it, all of them, I know them all. I, I think there is a massive amount of naivety, which is I, I, this is not to excuse or defend anything. I hasten to add, but there is a huge amount of naivety around all of this because vast most of them have waltzed out of a, an easy an easy education straight into politics. They have no experience of business. They've never really had to roll up their sleeves in, in the quote-unquote real world. And suddenly they're having to make business decisions and having to make them very, very quickly. And I think there is this sort of casual entitlement that comes and that characterizes a lot of their, their previous lives. And they think it's just an easy way to get things done. Um, and I go back to the point about working hard. Uh, lazy decisions get made under pressure. Uh, really bad choices are made, and I think for the most part, I understand the the the, the leap to court. But don't forget, most of these people are quite wealthy anyway, so it's not like they're trying to en enrich themselves in in the worst possible way. My my take on it is that this is done naively, and had they worked, for example, in business or done something before they went into politics, they would understand the the nature of the business world in a very different but way. But isn't this the reason but why they I, all have uh, civil servants working for them? To... Well, that's what, exactly what I was going to say, Rayfield. This, it's not just uh, member, members of parliament who are behind the decision-making. The members of parliament can pull up the civil servants and stop them from going forward with the correct decisions um, by, you know, levering them, putting leverage on them, frightening them with their jobs, uh, job security, all that sort of stuff. Um, so to say, uh, this is just my own personal view, and I've stood for Parliament twice as well, and I've worked very closely with David Cameron, uh, for example, at one particular time, and having worked so closely, I completely crossed the floor, jumped ship, and uh, <laughs> did, completely did my own thing. And in fact, the last two, the last general election for the Labour Party, I ran in the South West. To think and to say that it is the naivety of the members of parliament and especially maybe under pressure, under duress, during COVID or whatever, I don't think is correct. I, I think, you know, there are many senior people who are there making good decisions, but who are being overruled for all the wrong decisions by members of parliament. And certainly well, hold a minute. That's my point. That's my point. Uh, so, folks, um, we are on Clubhouse, uh, the new social media platform so if you are listening to the podcast and i know that some five thousand of you do on a weekly basis why don't you uh jump on to clubhouse and follow the mid-atlantic room what it means is that you uh can join us uh generally on a thursday when we normally record and uh pose a question to the panel james all i'm saying is and uh, and by the way i i, I am no Tory apologist i've only i've worked for I've worked on campaigns all over the world, so I'm not invested in, in the Tories in this sense. The problem is, and I think what a public inquiry will, will reveal, I mean, there's, there's two types of procurement, right? There's procurement in, in normal times, and then there's COVID procurement. And I think panic will be a huge characteristic of a lot of the decisions that were made in the COVID era. Um, you know, and you saw it with this, the text messages to James Dyson this week. You know, the guy was literally able to text the Prime Minister cutting out all the circuit breakers that would normally be there, as Dawn says, the civil servants that would be cautioning against 
this, that and the other procedurally and saying, you can't do this. We need to get three quotes. We need to do such and such. And obviously, I think a, a, an inquiry will reveal that a lot of the civil service was kept at arm's length on a lot of this stuff because of the urgency to get things done. James Dyson asking to, to make sure his employees wouldn't have tax implications if they were to visit the UK from Singapore is a classic example of that. So I, I think you have to separate the two. And I think enormous naivety will be part of it. None of it looks great. That's where I started. It looks absolutely terrible. We, I mean, with Dawn and I, I'm in total agreement on that. No, no question about it. But I do think an attempted defence will be we were in a national emergency and we had to get things done. You know, the, t- the T-shirt manufacturer in Turkey who made a load of PPE, which arrived in the UK with great fanfare and was totally unfit for, for the requirements. So it was basically thrown in the bin for with a bill of several million pounds. Uh, and that was a cold call to a T-shirt manufacturer in Turkey. I mean, it's comedy, comedy stuff. I try and be generous minded to you know, i have a lot of friends in labor so it's not i'm not partisan on this stuff at all but yeah. um i think i think an inquiry will uh will be very tough on the on on the response there's no question about it terrible terrible decisions made <laughs> uh, Dawn, Dawn, just... Ju- just before you yeah. jump in i just want to just bring john john back into this and then uh yes. it will be your time Dawn. uh john um you're you're a man who um is on these sides uh, this side of the atlantic you're an american but you've got a keen eye on european politics uh give us a, a compare and contrast between america and let's say uh the European countries, which you know a little bit about politically, in terms of corruption and, and sleaze. Um, it always seems to me that our British uh, corruption scandals, or at least the, you know, the whiff of, and the stench of a little bit of sleaze, are nothing compared to what goes on over here. But I'd be interested to hear an American's perspective. In the direct comparison between the UK and Britain, you might be right. Uh, you know, the campaign finance regime, for example, is much stricter in the UK. The campaigns are being publicly financed. There are limits on spending. Uh, in uh, the United States, you know, we had a Supreme Court decision in 2010 that was called uh, Citizens United versus FEC, which uh, resulted in the uh, development of this entire parallel campaign finance infrastructure, which was organized through outside third-party groups, which did not have limits on spending or on disclosure. So donors uh, uh, of any kind could donate unlimited sums to uh, third-party groups that would run campaign ads outside of the formal infrastructure of campaigns. And they could do that without disclosing their identities. So uh, this is what uh, led to, um, uh, you know, some, the emergence of some of these groups like Crossroads and uh, Americans for Prosperity, Club for Growth. Uh, there's countless of these uh, groups, and they're raising incredible amounts of money. Um, and the political candidates know uh, who's donating and to what interests uh, they owe the the money that's being spent on the campaigns. Um, but um, the public guy does not know, and there are no limits on how much each individual donor can spend. So it, it has uh, dramatically um, warped the incentives that come from the campaign finance system. It's very unfortunate, and it's all legal. Uh, yeah, so in the UK, I believe that the campaign finance regime is, is more developed uh, more regulated. Uh, there's a bigger role of public financing. So in that regard, uh, I would say that uh, the UK is ahead. Um, however, you know, looking at the bigger European picture, uh, we can look at um, events that have happened in a country like Italy in the 1990s. Uh, as uh, you guys may know, uh, the Christian Democrat Party, which had dominated the Italian political landscape for 50, 60 years, you know, since the end of the Second World War, uh, completely collapsed under uh, just a uh, string of uh, enormous, um, uh, you know, life-ending scandals for the uh, political figures involved. And uh, the entire Italian political system collapsed as a consequence of this. There's nothing states, you know, the Watergate scandal uh, was a major political scandal. But if you look at the detail of what really happened, you know, this uh, break-in of a building and then a cover-up, um, it really does pale in comparison to some of the events that we've seen elsewhere. And it also did not lead to the collapse of a political party. I think that in general, uh, Europe and uh, the United States are not entirely dissimilar in the gravity of political corruption. Utterly an observation. It appears to me that um, I think what you said, James, could well be in part, if not wholly correct. Um, We've lived under weird circumstances in the last year, weird the whole world over, and people had to make decisions rather quickly and um and 
due process was not necessarily followed. However, as I said, and then Dawn backed me up, that is the reason why you actually have civil servants, people who are versed in uh, public procurement and have just versed in uh, the ethics of doling out uh, jobs to companies. That's their job, you know, regardless of what uh, political parties in power, they're there setting the standards. So how that has been um, short-circuited, I don't know. However, I think, James, from a human point of view, you understand, taking a 30,000 feet view, why, let's say, maybe some of these decisions were actually made. Um, as I kind of kind of said before, compared to the states where I'm sat right now, our scandals seem piddling. That's not to say that they aren't um, scandals compared to what goes on over here. The one thing that does go on over here is uh, when generally a politician is caught with his hands down, you know, down the cookie jar, the Americans have a an habit of throwing them in jail, in prison, which is something which we generally don't do. Yes, because Jonathan Aitken, uh, but uh, governors, state senators, senators, whatever. Uh, it's you know, the Americans. Uh, if somebody is convicted, somebody in high office of um, a bit of corruption, you know, quite a few of them end up behind bars. And that is one of the one of the key differences between between the two uh, countries. And also um, the amount of money involved in the states just beggars belief. As, as John says, they're citizens united, but also um, politicians have to campaign uh, rigorously uh, over here. And it means one, and one of the things I have to do is co- be constantly be raising money. And I know a congressman and a, sen- a senator spends 50% of their time just trying to raise money just so they can be, be reelected, which is utterly perverse and, and somewhat disgusting. And, and one of the perverse outcomes of that is that they're mired in uh, financial scandals all the time. Um, James, I want to come back onto, onto <laughs> Dominic Cummings because he's actually a uh, flavour of the moment. Um, when's the last time you spoke to him? What's he up to right now? I haven't seen a spoken to him for a long time because I have I've been I've been um, stuck in in the states. Uh, first of all, it was um, visa paperwork, and then it was then, then it was the pandemic, and he's not a phone chatty guy. So we text, but that's that's it. We ha- I have we haven't seen each other for probably nearly a year and a half. So when you saw him last, he actually was uh, the uh, basically the right hand man, the consigliere of. Uh, Boris Johnson, uh, who was the PM. Actually, it was further further back than that. He had not gone to Downing Street at that point. I mean, this is how long ago I have. This is how long I've been out of the country for. So, you know, as I, I've said to you in the past, I'm first to say it's been um, quite some time since uh, since I've been there. Uh, I'm normally back every two or three months, but just at the moment, for obvious reasons, um, I'm I'm stuck. <laughs> I can't move. Kind of full disclosure, obviously, we, we've spoken a, a few times and you've been on the show um, a few as well now. And I'm a dyed-in-the-wall lefty. Um, see myself of left of left of centre, but I do believe in political dialogue. And the one thing which really stood out for me when we, when we first spoke is that you said, and it, and it made sense, uh, is that if you're going to run a political campaign, you shouldn't have any emotional forward slash political skin in the game you've got to do it you know kind of agnostic yeah 100% if you're working for the Tories you've got to work for the Tories regardless what your politics is um which I don't want to talk about Brexit per se but I just use that as an example um you're a Remainer but you could have worked solidly wholeheartedly for the Leave campaign could you oh yeah 100% I mean uh no question about it um you know, just as lots of people in professional life have to work with people they might not uh, believe in or even like as individuals. You know, a dentist doesn't get to say to, to his or her patient, oh, by the way, just before we get on with the business, what, you know, who do you vote for? Because I'm, you know, if you vote for Trump, I really don't want you in my den, you know, in my practice. Uh, and I say that slightly tongue in cheek, but it, but you understand my point. You know, uh, I, I, I like that metaphor. You're talking about a dentist and he said that this, uh, this expression was tongue in cheek. You know, you need, you need to keep going <laughs> with that. <laughs> I mean, you know, the same is true of the same is true of lawyers. Lawyers don't have the luxury of saying, I like you or I believe you're innocent or guilty or whatever it may be. They just have to get on and do the business. And the same is absolutely true of anyone that works on any campaign. And I, I always say to you, and I say it to anyone, it once you are personally invested with the candidate, you're going to make mistakes because you're thinking with your heart and not your head. And you need to be very objective about it. Classic example 
Hillary Clinton will end her days knowing that she did not give herself the best possible chance in 2016. If you watch an excellent film called The Accidental President, you will see that there were, although she was obviously the most qualified person to run for president in, in recent history, she ran a terrible campaign, made appalling decisions. And I contest that was partly by being surrounded with people who thought she walked on water and weren't prepared to challenge some really, really terrible choices. Um, and so I, I, I take that to any campaign. Um, you really want somebody who's not your friend who can say, Royfield, listen, I'm sorry. I just think you're totally wrong about the following three things. You can you know, tell me to be quiet or go away, but you need to be thinking of the following things, which your friends may not tell you. And if you don't correct them, you're in, you're, you know, you're going to be in trouble. And that's how a campaign has to function. And that's what all the best campaigns do. If you look at the Obama campaign, you know, had they run a bad campaign, he could have lost to John McCain. No, you know, you, well, one can lose any campaign by making terrible mistakes. And what David um, Axelrod did and um, what's his name, Pluff, they kept him absolutely where he needed to be to win that election. Taking emotion out of the people running the show, running the campaign is really, really important. And it, it makes a big difference to outcomes. I mean, an ex another example of this, um, Linton Crosby, who ran, ran David Cameron's successful re-election campaign, was really a Boris guy, is really a Boris guy. But Cameron, to his credit, said, you know what, I, if, if Linton Crosby is the best person to do this, then I'm going to hire him. And they did hire him, um, having made the mistake of not hiring him in 2010 and, and you know, ending up in a coalition with Lib, Lib Dems. Linton Crosby, again, one of the best campaign managers that I've ever come across, just mechanically gets on with the business and isn't all huggy, huggy, muggy, you know, self-involved with people and emotional about it. He just gets the job done. And so, again, people go to the end, to, to the election day, knowing they had the best chance of winning or lo losing. And again, I go back to that in a legal setting. As long as you can go into your uh, trial, whatever it may be, and know that you had the best possible defense or the best possible uh, case um, prosecution, that's what you need to know. And that's what um, any campaign needs to do in order to be successful. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Dominic Cummings is one of the most divisive characters at the top of British politics today. The debacle over his conduct during the coronavirus lockdown created a bitter schism in the Conservative Party, as well as prompting uproar across the country. True to his bullish character, however, Boris Johnson's chief advisor attempted to tough it out. He's no stranger to controversy after all. He's been lobbing grenades at the establishment for more than 20 years. The establishment operates on the basis of herding around conventional wisdom. It's why the establishment has got every big foreign policy decision wrong since trying to deal with Bismarck in the 1870s, 1860s. It was his role running the Vote Leave campaign in the 2016 referendum that marked the apex of his battle against what he saw as the Westminster elite and first made him a household name. He was the mastermind behind the campaign's winning Take Back Control message. What are we doing? Take back control! What are we doing? Take back control! 
and his profile was boosted when Benedict Cumberbatch played him in a TV adaptation of the events leading up to the EU poll. A native of Durham, he's the son of an oil rig engineer and a teacher. After state primary school, he went on to an independent senior school, then to Oxford, where he read modern history. A stint in Russia, where he was involved in a doomed attempt to launch a new airline, followed. The guerrilla campaigner first cut his political teeth, seeing off Tony Blair's flirtation with the Euro as the campaign director of business for Sterling. He then successfully blocked an attempt under New Labour to introduce regional assemblies. Next, he joined Michael Gove at the Department for Education and forcefully took on what he termed a complacent nexus of vested Whitehall interests, nicknamed the Blob. Weeks before he joined Downing Street in July 2019, he wrote a 10,000-word blog calling for a Whitehall revolution and an end to the supposedly Kafka-esque influence of senior mandarins on elected politicians. I don't like the man's politics, um, but uh, Nigel Farage, uh, you know, I think has been the most consequential politician in Britain in the last 20 years. Um, I think almost single-handedly, he uh, has brought the issue of Europe to the table, uh, helped, uh, you know, helped by a compliant uh, you know, tabloid press. But but he rode that. He rode Tony Blair's mistakes uh, when when Blair was in power with the opening of UK borders to uh, to Polish immigrants. And he's gone on and I think almost single handedly changed the course of British history with uh, that referendum. Uh, could we also put Dominic Cummins in that bracket, James? Here is somebody who, uh, you know, worked for Michael Gove, uh, was um, somewhat good at what he did, but the average person in the street w- wasn't really aware of him. That vote leave campaign uh, won uh, against all expectations, and then he helped uh, the Tories, uh, helped Boris Johnson, uh, you know, to win a thumping majority. Is he also one of the most consequential people in British politics in the last, maybe not 20 years, like, like Farage, but definitely in the last 10? Well, certainly by virtue of winning really important, really sig- significant, uh, in one case, a referendum and then election, you have to say yes. It's just you can't really not say yes to that. But I think just go back one second. When you look at Farage, Farage was the leader of a single issue party um, for you know UKIP at the time. It's worth ob- observing that single issue parties are, are an interesting vehicle. You know, the Greens are a single issue party, Nigel Farage is a single issue party. So, you know, if you if you're trying to make green policy, you never you know you're never gonna win power, but you can nevertheless be very effective on the fringes. And that's what Nigel Farage did very very well and again and like there were times when electorally ukip was successful um i'm trying to remember the name of the uh uh party that uh douglas carswell joined you know where they had that douglas anyway he left um he left he left his tory seat he he crossed he crossed into that other party um just totally escaping me um maybe dawn knows um there's uh but so, Sorry, so there's, there's, I can't remember either. The you know what I'm talking about. You, you know what I'm talking about. I do. But, um, so it's worth it's worth talking about single issue parties. They do have a place in politics and, and across the globe. They have, you know, big impacts for, for people that have single issue, um, sing, single issues they're obsessed with. Um, Nigel Farage, interestingly, did not lead the in, in the referendum. He They were not the official uh, exit party is another thing that's worth remembering. He was actually sidelined. Uh, he was sidelined because they didn't want it to be all extremist and all about immigration and everything else. They tried to run a slightly different campaign. Again, not defending it, but it's worth remembering that the vote leave campaign was given the, given by the Electoral Commission the uh, the, the actual official uh, uh, the 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 title of the the opposing party. Um, nevertheless, I think it's entirely likely that people knew Nigel Farage would hang around, driving around his. Um, uh, billboards on the sides of those vehicles with you know really provocative immigration messages and i and again i don't think anyone minded that because that meant you were bringing in that the population of people that wanted to hear that message um and the the, the other thing to say is you know as with the trump campaign vote leave was very in- innovative they weren't trotting out the same old ideas which is what a lot of the main parties get into they get into lazy habits and they use the same old playbook election after election and eventually it gets very tired um, you know, the Cummings campaign brought in outside of Westminster thinkers, they brought in physicists and data analysts and did all that stuff, which is now 
perhaps not considered as, as cutting edge as it once was, but nevertheless in UK politics, it was it was essentially um, a, 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 a machine that came out of nowhere that wasn't taken as seriously as it should have been. And as is often the, the way, you know, the, pro- the problem was the establishment, the Remain campaign was running a really boring, unimaginative campaign and just did not understand the threat posed by vote leave until it was too late. Um, so, yeah, I think in answer to your question, he is, a, he is a guy that has defined a lot about UK politics in the, in the last 10 years, both campaigning and in government. Dawn, uh, kind of interested in your perspective and we start to uh, wind things down. You said you worked with David Cameron uh, up close and personal. And Theresa May up close, yeah. Tell us about your dealings with them and the reasons why uh, you then uh, crossed the aisle, so to speak. Because they don't understand the lives of everyday people. And I think that's a really important thing. And in fact, you know, James early on was saying, you know, the thing is that they're all rich, they're all this, that and the other. Well, lots of us make our ways in life. And I, I was very lucky. I had a very privileged upbringing, um, but not in the realms of their sort of upbringings. Um, you know, and you make your own way in life. But also at some point, surely, you stop to think about the consequences of everything that happens on other people's lives. And, you know, you meet people as you go through life who are not privileged, who, in fact, certainly, uh, you know, over the years as I've been a counsellor, there there are people whose lives are utterly, utterly miserable, seriously miserable lives, who have nothing to show for all the hard work they've done all their lives and for all the taxes they've paid all their lives and things like that. Um, And uh, over a period of time, I mean, one of the things that I had to sign when I stood for Parliament under Cameron was a a piece of paper in front of a whole load of people, um, you know, thousands of people, to say, we will not touch the NHS. And what was the first thing they did? They got in and you saw all this footage of Cameron rolling up his sleeves. The first thing they did was completely alter the NHS. And it was that that just made me think, it it just really made me feel as though, well, this is all, everything was for show. You know, I had photos of me and all the press and all this sort of stuff and and every single element of it was was all about show. Um, Can I go back actually, Royfield, to something that you were talking about earlier? And that was um, the way that uh, the Americans, as John was saying, you know, um, they go to prison over uh, dealings, financial dealings, whatever. And in the UK, they don't. Uh, Sorry. And in the UK, actually, I think that was what you were saying. In the UK, we deal with people differently, no matter what they're doing. Well, in actual fact, um, in the UK, we, you're right, we don't put people into prison who have been members of parliament or whatever for scandalous misuse of funds, public funds, public monies. But what we do is we do put people into prison over perjury. And that was the Aitkin. Because when you, when you think back, um, when it was, um, oh gosh, what was it called? Cash for Questions. Yes. Now, that was nothing to do with Aitkin. That was to do with, um, gosh, what is his name? Neil Hamilton. And he didn't go to prison for that. But when you think about Geoffrey Archer, it was perjury. When you think about Aitken, it was perjury. All these people who ended up going to prison, it was all about perjury. Um, so we do have very strange, unusual... And Andy Coulson went to prison. Yeah, well, actually, yes, he did. Um, but again... So did Geoffrey so Archer. But it, what I'm saying is it's not to do with money, it's to do with perjury, yes, it's to do with yeah. lying. Uh, Dawn, uh, a point well made, an excellent point well, well made there. Um, I don't know why we don't care about money in the same way in this country. Uh, we should do because it is, you know, it's a serious abuse of hardworking, taxpaying individuals. Hmm. Going back to Dominic, Dominic Cummings as well, by the way, and what James was saying again, you know, about uh, the uh, not wearing any party political colour on your sleeve. I think even any member of parliament going into an election when you're fighting or when you're arguing a point or debating or anything else at all times, I honestly believe that you've got to always remember that there is no one party that fits everybody all of the time. And every party has great ideas that accommodate and suit all of us across the board. But they don't necessarily, you know, but but no one particular party can 
genuinely, honestly represent every single one of us. And it's the same thing. It's like going into a game of chess when it comes to politics. Any political campaign you want to move forward with, you've always got to be able to think objectively, how will this be viewed by Labour, by Liberal Democrats, by Tories, by UKIP, by all these different people. And only when you get a hold of all of that in the same way that Cummings has had, can you make any political gain for any one party? Uh, John, I'm going to leave uh, the last word to you because uh, you've been somewhat on the uh, the sidelines in uh, in this debate here. How ruinous do you think that this scandal uh, will will be? This current uh, fight uh, between Cummins and Johnson and the various sleaze allegations will be on the Tory party. As I say, you're a political sage. Uh, you, you look at um, European politics uh, from the safety of American shores. Um, will this be just a storm in a teacup, as we say in England, or will this be something which really d- will damage the reputation of Boris Johnson going forward? Uh, well, first, I'll just say about this question about do we imprison uh, people for corruption and political crimes? Um, there has been some recent innovation in the United States legal system, which suggests that we will be imprisoning fewer people for some of these uh, instances of bribery that we were more zealous in prosecuting in the past. The case that I'm thinking of is a case about a gentleman named Bob McDonnell. I don't know if anyone is familiar with him, but he was the governor of Virginia and convicted of bribery. Uh, Uh, But the Supreme Court vacated the decision because they determined that the standard of bribery needed to be raised much higher, where there was a much more explicit quid pro quo. And under the new legal regime of bribery post the McDonald decision, some of the figures that we've imprisoned in the past, like Rod Blagojevich, maybe wouldn't be imprisoned. But uh, just about Cummings and what this will mean for the future of Boris Johnson and the Tory party, I, I do wonder if Cummings has perhaps lost his luster in recent years. Um, you know, his, as James characterized, you know, he's been incredibly successful as a campaigner, perhaps not quite as successful as a uh, uh, technocrat or a policy advisor inside of number 10. And uh, as we all know, was unceremoniously ousted from his post. I wonder who his words still really carry a lot of water with. You know, he's always been sort of a uh, bet noir of uh, the Labour Party. And uh, the those who uh, support the remaining inside the European Union. But now after he's burned his bridges inside of number 10, uh, does he speak for many people on the other side of the aisle? Uh, Who is really there to listen to him and to take his criticism seriously and to uh, to take him as as a champion of of their cause? I think it's a reminder that although his campaigns were successful, people weren't voting for him. They were voting for the candidate. Uh, he was good at building the message, but he is not the person that uh, people were. Oh, hold on a minute. Sorry, sorry, sorry. He's a campaign operative that no one ever vote. Most people don't even know his name until after the election. That's so exactly he, what I'm I mean, saying. It's totally yeah. irrelevant. But let me tell you, in the open market of money and politics, unless a candidate, if a candidate comes along or a cause comes along that can't find someone better than him, he's exciting and he's risky. And that's what people overlook. You have to have the person that will take the risks and be creative and work the hardest. And until he's replaced by someone who's better than him, I guarantee you when someone is within reach of power, wherever they come from, and across the world, by the way, because there is a world market of these people, they they would use them again and again. And that is just that's just a fact of markets and ability. And, and, you know, he may have a fallout of Boris Johnson, but Boris Johnson looks pretty stupid in this fallout, in my opinion. Um, so it's, it's worth, rem- worth remembering. And, and the only other thing I'll say, John, that's interesting on the, on the footnote of this. And one of my other great beliefs is that campaign staff should never go into, into power. You know, the, 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 the people that market the Mercedes Benz don't get to go and design the brakes for the next model. They, they're just totally separate. And I think it always ends in tears when people go into government having worked on a campaign. I, I don't think that, um, your clarification was uh, pushing back on me. I think that, uh, we see this the same way. Um, when I was saying that he was an operative and not the candidate, I, I was just uh, saying something obvious, uh, just like you said. Uh, but what I mean by that is to um, explain why him speaking publicly uh, will not necessarily bring a lot of public sentiment along. You see what I mean? Because just like you said, 
he himself is not the celebrity. He's not the political candidate. He's not the one who, as a personality, moves people. So him going out in public, testifying, uh, speaking uh, personally about things that he witnessed and his perspectives, you know, his messaging power is putting messages behind other figures. But him as an individual speaking out won't necessarily move public opinion. That's what I was trying to say. Because he was working on, on he worked on the campaign, obviously, which got him, got Boris Johnson reelected, but was then in the equivalent of the executive branch, if you like, in number 10 Downing Street. So then he does become a member of the government, albeit not someone anyone voted for. And in this crisis that's just happened, um, if his contribution reveals a lot of incompetence and all the kinds of things Dawn was talking about earlier, then I, I, it will have an effect. Um, and it will be quite, it could be, you know, in a big public inquiry, it could be really quite a damaging effect on, on the government. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, if nothing else, it's destabilizing for the Tory party. And there's going to be other senior mem- uh, members of that uh, government who are going to be going to be rubbing their hands with glee because this does and will potentially anyway uh, weaken the position of the prime minister Uh, so that's been us this has been your your mid-atlantic um a little bit earlier this week and uh we focused on uh dominic cummings uh who somebody who has been one of the most consequential figures in uk politics in the last five years uh you don't forget if you are on clubhouse that new social media platform why don't you go on there and join our uh, our little club which is called quite easily please remember mid-atlantic uh remember folks left of center politics is right thinking politics we'll see you all again in two weeks time for another rip-roaring barnstorming episode of mid-atlantic Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.